Welcome to the HR Uprising podcast. This podcast series explores HR hot topics and challenges through conversations with relevant experts and real-life HR learning and OD professionals. The HR Uprising is about learning through collaboration and evidence-based action. We want colleagues to have the confidence and skills to rise up through their organizations by delivering real, lasting business value. Now, introducing your host, chartered psychologist, experienced change agent, entrepreneur, speaker, and coach, Lucinda Carney. Hi there, it's Lucinda from the HR Uprising. And listening to your feedback, um, particularly over the 12 HRs in 12 minutes, or almost 12 minutes that we carried out in December, a number of you really enjoyed hearing people's stories. And it got me to thinking about um, how we can do this differently, not just have industry experts when we're having conversations with others, but how we can hear more. I always wanted to have conversations with real life HR professionals. So over the next six months or so, I'm intending to do a couple of different types of conversation with this year. One of them is going to be a conversation with HR directors. So essentially understanding an extended version of what we did with the uh, the 12 HRs, understanding people's career paths, their journey, the lessons they've learnt, and actually their experience as to how they've got into a senior role in HR. And if that's something that's relevant to other people, hopefully we can all take lessons from that. So that's what today's podcast is about. But the other type of podcast I'm going to do is um, going to be talking to CEOs and senior managers within businesses and asking them about what they really want from HR. Because often we are maligned, aren't we? We get told what we should and shouldn't be doing. And I thought it would be great to hear from the business point of view, what do they value that HR brings to the party? And um, you know what else can we do to, to bring value to, the, to an organisation? So those are two different types of conversation with subjects that we're going to do this year alongside as ever where there are topics that I can research um, or have some expertise or knowledge in where we can carry on also providing those nuggets of knowledge for people. So please do keep on letting me know if there's something you'd like me to look into or explore or you're an expert in that we can share that knowledge as well to this population which is growing all the time. So This is our first conversation with or extended conversation with an HR director. And I'm really pleased to have as my first guest in this area, a gentleman called Dan Simpson, who I've known for about 20 odd years. He'll hear that as we go through things. Some of you know, if you heard the conversation, the interview that um, Sean did with me back in December, that I, I spent a large proportion of my career in Siemens. Prior to that, I worked at Pfizer and um, Dan was one of the people that I was lucky enough to work with. We did various things with assessment centres. We were in different businesses, so we didn't work together all the time. Uh, and it's interesting to hear the opportunities that you can get working for a large global organisation. Not all positive, but there's definitely some really good insights there. So I really look forward to hope you enjoy this conversation with Dan Simpson. I'd now like to welcome Dan Simpson, who is the Head of People and Leadership for Europe at Siemens. Dan, welcome to the HR Uprising. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on. Now, I know you've 
had quite a detailed career progression, I guess, as you've been through a number of roles, so I met you way back in my history. Would you be kind enough to um, walk us through your career to date and any sort of highlights that people could uh, pick up from your journey so far? Yes, I'd be delighted. And uh, thanks very much for having me on, Lucinda. So my, my career has been a, a series of um, happy coincidences um, and serendipity. Um, where I've met people and through those relationships have found opportunities. And I think that's one of the, the, the tricks of, of having a career I've learned. Um, so I, I started my life, working life in Sainsbury's. I didn't know what I wanted to do after university. I had some vague idea that the army might be a good idea. But after um, some early experiences in the officer training corps at university, I soon worked out that wasn't for me. <laughs> and I ended up working for Sainsbury's and I was very fortunate because I decided to bolster my CV and join the um, stu- the staff council as a student representative. And the supermarkets board visited my store and I ended up sat next to the group HR director, a very nice chap called John Adset. And I'd formed quite a good bond with the personnel manager. I was intrigued with the work that she did as the um, closest advisor to the store manager at the time. And um, I I asked a rather cheeky question to the marketing director who produced some truly terrible advertising campaigns for Sainsbury's. And uh, at the end of it, the group HR director said, "Uh, what would you like to do with your future? And I said, well, I'd quite like to go into HR like you. He said, oh, very good. Here's my card, uh, write to my secretary. Uh, And I I did. And he was true to his word. Two weeks later, I found myself on an assessment center for personnel managers in training at Sainsbury's and wow, fair I, enough. I passed that assessment centre but it was really great Lucinda this is kind of one of my first you know HR 101 tricks never let anybody near a HR office who doesn't know how the business works and they said to me you need to go and spend a year on the shop floor really understanding how a supermarket works because only then will you be an effective HR person so I rolled my sleeves up I, I got stuck in had a brilliant uh, 12 months as a trainee manager. And, and another happy coincidence happened. I formed another good relationship with my store manager, who I now know was one of the high potentials of the company. And the store that we worked in was frequently visited by the directors of Sainsbury's. And one of the directors visited the store. And I was in charge of the, the comic relief preparations because Sainsbury's was the, the principal sponsor of comic relief then. And uh, I got to meet John and uh, John... Uh, took a shine to me and asked me if I'd like to come and be his executive assistant, his PA, chief of staff type thing, which was one of Sainsbury's um, roots of picking people out. And so I, for 18 months then, was this guy's uh, PA. And I drove him around. Uh, I organized his life. I made sure he was fully prepped and ready for you know meetings, events and things. And I can honestly tell you, he was um, one of the most difficult people I've ever had to work with and for. Uh, he was a little bit old-fashioned in his style, um, would frequently shout and swear at me uh, all hours of the morning because I was seven days a week uh, in, a, in that car or in the office with him. But it really did teach me two things. It taught me resilience and it taught me to deliver with pace and speed. And when I came out of that assignment, I was streets ahead of my peer group because I'd seen so much of what actually goes on at the strategic level, not just the operational level. And from there, I did an assignment in London. So Sainsbury's were doing a big restructuring um, of the supermarkets business. 
I became part of the change management team. So I had my first bit of exposure to OD. Um, and it was through that relationship with John, um, a personnel manager vacancy arose and he placed me into one of the stores. And I was the personnel manager at our um, store at Kempshot at Basingstoke and then at Guildford uh, Town Centre. And it was while I was doing my CIPD, I met somebody from Siemens. And uh-huh. uh, the, the two of us hooked up, got on really well. And uh, somebody you'll remember from the past, Lucinda, Teresa Frost, was looking yes. for uh, a talent management uh, executive to come and help her with this you know, new concept that Siemens were developing. Now, I had no idea who Siemens were. I had a vague recollection that they sponsored Real Madrid Football Club at the time. Um, and I went along. I know, I remember. I do remember moving there myself and having not heard of them and yes. then realising they, they, they employed 20,000 people as it was feeling very ignorant. <laughs> I know. And, and it's when you then look up and you see not only what they employ at the country level, but globally. I mean, you know, when I joined Siemens in 2004, the company could say there were half a million people around the world who worked for them. And we used to have a saying in Siemens that there are only two organisations that have more people. One was Coca-Cola and the second was the Catholic Church in, in, in location. So uh, brilliant, you know, insight. And I, and I, I kind of thought I'd done my time at Sainsbury's and, you know, the business was actually going through some difficult times because it was when it um, issued its profits warning. And I, I sort of just got a bit fed up of hearing about bad news. And the opportunity to join Siemens, you know, retail is a tough, tough gig, you know, holidays, uh, you know, around all the time you're working when most people are on holiday. So uh, Christmas and Easter and things like that. So the chance to do something different in a cool company like Siemens arose. And I, I went to work for Teresa and we, this is where I first met you, Lucinda, when we were rolling out all of our development programs. And I rolled out the new performance management process for Siemens. And then I rolled out the uh, executive succession planning process and I supported Teresa in in doing that and Teresa was a fabulous fabulous mentor for me because she was somebody that was so connected to the business yet she was able to go onto stage and really sell it and she made our function look good and and I remember at the time you know there was a fair amount of envy from Teresa's colleagues because she was actually becoming the kind of hub for a lot of the HR activity which I think talent management can sometimes uniquely do you know, talent management can pull together various strands across the organisation. And yeah. so, um, you know, I would you that... say that's Can I just ask you on that? So talent, mm. would you say it was talent management? Was it OD? It was, you know, that kind of... Because so I, I do see that some, it's quite different from some of the other aspects of HR. Yeah, so I would say to you, for sure, we were definitely not doing OD at that point. Right. Um, but I, I would like to talk to you a lot about OD in terms of what I've done subsequently, because I think OD uniquely now can play that role in in an organization and i think every business partner mm. must have an od mindset but i i think that what we were doing at the time was we were actually answering one of the fundamental questions um which i'll come back to which is you know hr is not about doing hr stuff hr is about being a partner to the business and it's helping the business build the capability it needs to build, deliver its promises to its stakeholders uh, and, and, you know, capability is a big word. I'm not talking about the, the simple definition of capability. I'm talking about, you know, the McKinsey 7S model of the systems, the structures, the staffing, the style, or, you know, for other that mean culture. So it's the total gamut. And I think what we were doing there was engaging the business in a conversation about what's actually going on where you are. Um, and it was a brilliant time. I, I loved it. You know, you, you and I, 
worked together when we were uh, rolling out development centres and you were one of our assessors, Lucinda, and you know, we used EDI and OPP to simulate um, assessments, uh, which, were, which were really cool. And again, I, I learned something there, which was that you, know, you, you really do need to, you know, assessment centres and, and development centres are still empirically um, the closest match you will get to a real world event. So if you want to look at somebody performing a job, they still have the highest correlation. Of course, what they do have is a lot of cost and organisational effort that goes around them. I mean, you'll remember we used to have to really take four days out of people's lives in order to, to do that. And the question now in a, in a more agile world is whether that's a good time investment or whether you can do it in other ways. Uh, and then I, I met um, a, a guy called Mike Jones, who was the HR director for our power generation business. Uh, and uh, Mike said to me, we've got this little business called Wind Power. We don't really know much about it at the moment. There's about 50 people. We need a HR director, HR, head of HR, to come and uh, help set it up. And, you know, my, my career advice had been, right, you've done your bit in the centre. Great. You've got your corporate bit. You now need to go and have some operational experience in in the Siemens context so I went to become the head of HR for Siemens Wind Power and wow that was one of the best decisions I ever made I had another offer on the table from Siemens at that time from someone who you know is to this day still my mentor and I I really wanted to go and work for him in his part of the business but I I knew that the part of the business that that Mike was offering me would be actually a bigger stretch for me and working with him would be a different challenge to working to the other guy. So sometimes we have those crossroad moments, don't we, where you have to make that call. And um, I, I opted for the wind power business and could honestly say, you know, don't, don't regret it for a single day because we grew that business so fast. I mean, we were setting up sales, project management, commercial contracting, logistics, and we had partnerships with the British Army um, you know, we're hiring cool army officers to come and move this kind of kit around. Uh, and we grew the business you know, massively. I mean, it went from, you know, that sort of 50 people, you know, to well over a thousand people. And, you know, it, it was great. Unfortunately, you know, we, in that line of work, it's high risk. And to go with the great highs we had of the big project wins and the building the team, we also had um, two employees were killed in, in, in industrial accidents in our business. And that taught me a whole new, the, the, if you like, the, the resilience I'd learned until then was really tested when you were put into that high pressure crisis management situation where somebody had died. And you, that, that's just the, you know, no, no matter what problems you're having at work on a day to day basis, if someone goes to work and doesn't come home, it's a total system failure. And we had to address that total system failure, both as a leadership team, but also with the wider community and the, uh, you know, where, where the guy lived. You know, we went to the funeral and we, we, we you know, had to arrange counselling for our employees. But it was always about remembering um, Colin, who, who died, and, and making sure that he didn't die in vain and that we, we were able to learn the lessons of what happened. And that's when I first started to really understand what true OD meant. Because at that point, we realised that the, the systematic failure that had occurred in our organisation was effectively one of behaviour. And the behaviour that we needed to change and correct became a system-wide OD challenge. 
And so we started to engage with uh, drama-based groups to change behavior around health and safety. Um, and then even after I left, you know, they continued with that work, um, which, which I think was absolutely instrumental in changing the health and safety culture of, of our business. And I, because I was known as Mr. Talent from my corporate days, I, I used to have a double hat for Mike. So he gave everyone, you know, kind of special project to do. Mine was talent. And through that, I got to know Toby Payton Jones, who was the UK HR director for Siemens until a year ago. Now, I mean, I would like to, if it's okay, just make special mention of Toby because Toby has been a very big part of my life. Um, and you know, I learned so much from Teresa. I learned so much from Mike. I learned so much from a, a great guy called Rob Voss. And Toby was the kind of pinnacle of that learning for me because he taught me things that I use to this day that I will always use and that I would pass on to, to other people. And he was just a great human being. You know, Toby was one of those really unique, diverse individuals who was able, under huge pressure, to always keep his composure, keep his calm and navigate and chart a way uh, to, to the future. So it was a real privilege to be asked to go and work with Toby. And he asked me to create a new centre of competence, which brought together the recruitment, the development and the learning side in Northwest Europe, as we were then. And to, you know, build a team, to right size the team, to get the team, you know, into a good shape. And I've done a version of that until talking to you now where, you know, Siemens has gone through various HR transformations because of the network I then built internationally and globally. I found myself placed into the global center of competence around people and leadership. And, you know, for the past three years, I've been completely redesigning and implementing a, a new construct about how we um, do three things, right work, right location and right people so that we get a different type of conversation going on um, around people and leadership. And um, you find me here today. It's a, that's quite a journey. And what's coming through from all of that is your pattern of, yes, resilience, the importance of that, and also relationships, isn't yes. it? So you've clearly been a real relationship builder, maybe a networker. I mean, do you network outside of, of Siemens? I do. Yes, I do. So um, I'm very lucky that... Um, uh, so somebody else I would like to give special mention to is Nick Holly. So I was fortunate, oh, yeah. I was fortunate enough to meet Nick um, back in um, 2010, I think it was. And Nick was running the uh, Henley HR Centre of Excellence. He now runs the Corporate Research Forum. And I went to a, one of Nick's seminars, which was just brilliant. Nick, Nick was talking about things that I hadn't even dreamt about. And I got talking to him afterwards and Nick said to me, you need to go and meet a guy called Mike Haffenden and the Corporate Research Forum. And so I went to meet Mike uh, and he's really you know, tough, hard guy, um, brilliant headhunter uh, and very, very committed to the um, further development of the HR profession. And he, he recommended that I join the Corporate Research Forum. And again, that was one of the best decisions I made because in joining the Corporate Research Forum, going to their events, you network with not only the best of academia, but also with your, your peers. And I've learned so much. I mean, the research reports that are produced, the conversations you have on the tables. So together with Nick um, and the research that the CRF do, I've really been able to broaden my horizons outside of the organisation. And I, I'm a great believer in constantly scanning the horizon 
so that you're ensuring you're bringing, bringing the best of the outside in. But one, one important thing I learned from Nick Lucinda, which I, I think is really important, is the danger in scanning the outside and bringing it in is that you lose the context. And context is so important when you're trying to design things that make sense for your environment. So how many organizations copied blindly General Electric's 70-20-10 model and just implemented it? Um, but did not get the success that they wanted from it. It's countless examples. And obviously the worst of them being Enron, who had this real high performer culture based upon that. And, and I think that it's really important as a HR professional that with your OD mindset, that when you diagnose a problem, you don't just then go to the first shiny thing on the shelf that you may have read about in the Harvard Business Review or seen in the seminar. You have to then critically evaluate it to understand if contextually it would apply to your organization. Um, and, you know, that was one of the things that I learned. Uh, one of my passions is diversity and inclusion. And I had a real challenge getting Siemens to, to buy into diversity and inclusion. So, so that's your next, your next link there. So is that now your responsibility, diversity and in- inclusion? Yes. Yeah, so diversity and inclusion has been part of my portfolio since 2010. When I first picked it up, it was very much seen as a um, compliance-related topic, um, where are we complying with the Equality Act? And I and I have to confess, as you know, from a personal learning perspective, I was probably one of those people that wondered a little bit whether diversity was just another extension of health and safety gone mad. Um, and I'm I'm pleased to say that I I you know, disabused myself of those notions and came to really see the critical importance that diversity and inclusion has to the organization. Now, now, of course, the danger of that is that when you have your eyes open to something, when you see something for what it is, you, you become an advocate. And I became a little too over-advocating of DNI. So although most people accept it's the right thing to do, actually, if you are, like in my context, a white man of a certain age, possibly German, you can feel very threatened by that. And it's not your fault that actually you've been rewarded and praised for for achieving a level of um, efficiency, productivity and success. And then you get this bunch of people saying to you, but you know what? We need to disrupt you and we need to make you inefficient for a little while. And you need to bring some different people into the organisation. And if you've not been schooled in any of these topics, then it can be a very scary thing to do. So it's no surprise that you have to really attack this problem from multiple angles, otherwise people will just shut down. So what I realized with DNI was that advocacy was not enough. I could tell people that they needed to do something about it, but I needed to provide some data. So we did three things, um, Lucinda, which I'm still to this day really proud of. I mean, we, we decided to go and make some database decisions. So I work in a technology company, engineering and technology company. They're very data literate people. and, and Somehow that can almost be used as a crime. It's not. It's an absolute strength. So I needed some data to convince them, first of all, that DNI made sense. So we partnered with the National Employment, uh, National Equality Standards, sorry, through um, Ernst & Young. And we did a rigorous EY style audit on our DNI practices. And we presented them with some data. And I remember one of the executive leadership team coming back to me and saying, wow, that was the best external presentation we've ever had because that no one was lecturing them 
but people were still safe, but people were still able um, to make the link between more innovation, more profit, and more productivity with a diverse environment. The second thing we did was we decided to make um, uh, you know really conscious this idea that um, unconscious bias is something which is inherent in all of us, but if we have a better understanding of that, we could create a more inclusive environment. So we then made an investment in unconscious bias training, which was quite a big step for Siemens because I know some of the professional service environments have been doing it for years, but from an engineering and technology company, that was a big step to make. On that, Dan, have you have you seen a return on that unconscious bias training? Because there has been some scepticism as to whether or not it works, hasn't there? There has. And I, I, I totally understand why that is, because I think people see unconscious bias training as a silver bullet. They think that if you do that, it will solve a problem. But I always took the approach that unconscious bias training is like one of those wearable devices you put on your wrist. It gives you a nudge and tells you when you haven't done enough steps for the day. And, and so what it does is it, it systematically changes your behavior over a period of time. Um, and I believe we did see a return on, on the unconscious bias training. I mean, we had um, some proprietary software from one of our providers that showed that we had reduced the implicit bias from some of our control groups. We also had a bit of a spike in our employee helpline where people were calling and being more open to discussing issues and topics um, around their workplace, around my manager's not doing this or my manager's not doing that. So I think we did change the conversation. And of course, it then went hand in hand with a more broader conversation about um, awareness of mental health issues, which was when you change the dialogue and you change the conversation, which of course is what good OD does. I'm a big believer in you know, a, a dialogue method of, of OD um, where, you, where you construct different pictures for people to go towards. Then that is what we tried to do with DNI. And I, I think if you look at the DNI practice in Siemens in the UK now, but also globally, it's, it's a million miles away from the place that we started back in 2010. So, Dan, so people listening to this, often what we need are things that are quite practical in terms of the takeaways. And one of the things I just wanted to drill in there, which I think is a really interesting one, is this whole dialogue, changing the dialogue around OD, being OD, doing OD. Yes. Because over the podcast I've done over the last six months, one of the the most popular ones is trying to demystify OD. Uh So for people listening out there, what practical steps did you do or would you do to create a a different dialogue? in these so, areas okay so one of the one of them yeah i mean and you're so right listen because you know od's kind of acquired this almost like mythical quality and 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 status the the the, the trick of of great od is to first of all frame frame the problem around um i i call them generative images it's this idea of where are we now actually get people to describe and discuss exactly where they are now with the problems that go with it. So I, again, privileged to work with a really wonderful man called Chris Goscombe, who is a practitioner of appreciative inquiry. Um, That's not to scare anybody off. All it means is that you go in and you really have a conversation with people and ask them to describe the environment as they see it and as they feel it. And Chris uses, for example, very simple Lego models to get people to describe how they're feeling and, and how they would like to uh, express how they feel in in that environment 
And then you create a generative image on the other side and you say, well, what would, what would a, an image of the future look like that you were all willing to support and buy into? And by creating those two pictures, you can then start to imagine the map that goes between how do you go from one place to the other and how do you regularly check in by doing experiments, by having conversations uh, to its success? One of the things that we did was we created um, what we called a, a practitioner community where we invited people who were doing OD work. And, and OD work you'll find everywhere. Anybody that's running a workshop, doing a little experiment in a department or an area is practicing a piece of OD. And the, the, the question is, have they changed the behavior and the mindset of the, of the people that they're trying to bring along with them so that they actually think and act differently at, at the end of it? So I, I would thoroughly encourage anyone to use just some simple techniques like world cafes, appreciative inquiry, um, even bringing some postcards along to a workshop and spreading them out on the desk and saying to people, pick up two or three postcards that describe how you're feeling today. So those are really nice and um, workshoppy type things. I was just thinking one of the things that's changed a lot since we were um, well working in the same environment is, and Siemens has always been pretty good at allowing people to go to workshops and having time out. Mm -hmm. uh, do you do any of this virtually? Because often that's the challenge is actually getting people together. It, it, have you... I don't know whether you have. Have you any opportunities to do OD in a more virtual, virtual collaborative manner? Yes, we have. Um, so last year we organised um, a series of hackathons, um, which took place all across um, the world, where people were using technology. Like, I mean, in Siemens, we use the circuit technology, where you've got circuit meeting rooms, you know, equipped with cameras, where you've got groups of people still coming together to to a degree, but in smaller groups and working virtually. So, yes, uh, we, we have, and it was a huge success. That's great. So, it's just, so, you can, so there's, it, we don't, it's, it, we've got to move with the times, haven't we, if you're trying to do OD, is help people maximise the time and get that collaboration going. So people were collaborating because they could see other groups of people through the yes. technology? Yes. So what, what we were doing is we, we were using uh, a series of tools to help people. So um, Concept Board is one of the tools that, that has been used and actually that I've used you know, more practically with my team. So my team are um, spread out across Europe. They're not all in the UK. And what we do when we have our meetings, um, we use the concept board in order to create a virtual whiteboard. And then you can brainstorm ideas live so people can see the um, ideas going up onto the, onto the virtual concept board. We can group them, debate them. We can dynamically edit them. And at the end of it, you have um, almost what I would describe as a product. And your product then can be um, updated in real time because everyone's got access to the concept board to be able to go in and use that data whenever they wish. Sounds great. I like it. Okay, so Dan, I'm just conscious of your time here. Uh, there's there's lots of stuff we've gone into there, a little bit about your background, but also some really nice um, insights into actually how you've, I suppose, brought a sort of real passion to things like diversity, inclusion and health and safety, which can often be tick boxing. So you've brought those to life. We've talked about OD. If you were to look back to yourself back in the Sainsbury's days, mm -hmm. have you got any, is there anything you'd have done differently? What, what advice would you give your younger self? Yes, I, I, I would say to my younger self, um, I think two things. The first thing would be to relax and hold um, 
dilemmas and conflicts a lot more lightly. So Toby really taught me that um, it's so important to maintain your sense of perspective, even when it's in the heat of the moment, to really not not worry about what other people are thinking about you. I, I was somebody early on that was very, very concerned about what other people thought of me. And a lot of my self-esteem and my resilience was based around, did I have that positive affirmation from other people? Now I'm much better able to self-regulate my own self-esteem and my own um, sense of self, of worth, without having that to be um, told to me by, by other people. So of course, I still need the feedback. And so going out and seeking feedback I, I think is really, really important. Um, but actually, you know, regulating myself and knowing that I'm doing a good job is, is a good thing. The, the second thing I would teach myself is focus on control the controllables. I used to worry terribly about what might happen here, there and everywhere. And actually, how much control did I have over those events? None. But I can control how I turn up, how I perform, how I interact with other people. And yeah, okay, if a decision gets made either in the Sainsbury's boardroom or the Munich boardroom, I'm not going to be able to influence that, but I can control how I react and how I choose to turn up. And I think that's really important advice to give to my younger self. Um, and I hope that would be useful to other people who may experience the same thing. Yeah, so be almost more internally measured on what it is and just focus on what, what's in within your control because you can worry so much about that stuff that's out of your control and that can actually set you back can't it it, it um, can it, i think yeah you know, control the controllables is a is a super mantra for life it's what a lot of sports people use as well to um to to, to control their performance on on the, the sports field whichever field they yeah. choose to go out on and, and you know it's that that other one of mine about actually not worrying about what other people think about you um, because yeah. you're never going to please all the people all the time. And if you live your life needing to have that affirmation from others, actually, you're probably not going to fulfill your potential. It took me a little while to realize that. My dad always called it wearing my heart on my sleeve. And yeah. of course, I still will wear my heart on my sleeve when I need to. But I'm much better at um, you know, taking a, a measured view about when I can't change something as well. No, that makes lots of sense. And then my final question is, uh, from a sort of HR perspective, uh, if you were to have an HR magic wand, Dan, that you could wave, whether it's over the profession or people that you work with, what would you, or a superpower, if you like, the other yeah. looking at it, what would what would it be? So I would I would um, I would copy Superman in the original Christopher Reeve movie, which is the best, and I would fly around the earth several times to turn back time to the beginning of HR. And I would eradicate right. all use of the term HR and right. go forward and uh, call us something else around purpose and growth. Because for me, the purpose of HR is not to do HR. The purpose of HR is to build the capability that the business needs to deliver the promises it makes to its stakeholders. And those stakeholders are all the people that are buying its products or the shareholders. And HR has got this mindset its customers are all internal and what do my customers think of me and as soon as you get into that that master servant environment you are never going to be able to add the value that you can from a you know because like we were talking about lucinda od is about taking a systems view of the organization 
An organization is a system just like the human body. And you have to be able to understand how the system fits in together. But too many people in HR are committed to being process owners, controllers, and masters of data. And I just do not think that is the future of our profession. I think that's a really strong place to end on, actually. There's a number of quotes about it. It's not just about HR stuff. Um, and, and actually, potentially what you're saying there is that's the way to, to progress through an organisation. It's not just about relationships. It's about seeing that purpose and that business value um, and making sure you're taking that journey. I guess you know the data has a place and the processes have a place to support some of that, but it's not letting that be the be-all and end-all. Exactly, Lucinda. It's about understanding how everything you're doing is in service of helping the business to deliver its promises to its stakeholders. So if you're Apple or if you're Google or if you're Sainsbury's or you're Siemens, or if you're an SME, you are making a promise to somebody that when they buy your product or service, that's what they're going to get. And they're going to get that with the highest quality, the best price, all the things that we know. HR's job is to sit alongside as part of that management team, as part of the leadership team, and build the capability to ensure it can deliver its promises. If, if you think you can just sit there and come up with a HR solution and then go look and find the problem that it's got to solve, you've done it completely the wrong way. I've always believed that if you walk into a boardroom, you should not be able to spot who the HR director is. Yeah, I like it. Great. Dan, thank you so much for being on the HR Uprising. I've really enjoyed um, catching up with you, actually, and, and, and you. so much there to, to hear. So very much appreciate it. Thank you, Lucinda. It's lovely to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. You can access more information, including resources or links mentioned in the show at our website, www.hruprising.com. Also, you might want to join our LinkedIn community or tweet to us at HR Uprising. We'd love to hear from you.